We're going through the affirmations of faith that our church will be voting on, not sure if it's June or November, whichever those meetings happen. Our, our affirmation of faith isn't that we, our new affirmation of faith, as I said before, yes? As I was saying about the affirmations of faith, it's not that we've changed our doctrine, it's that we are stating them in a, in a way that is more winsome and more comprehensive. And as part of that process, I am preaching through those affirmations of faith, examining them by the standards of Scripture. And we got an example last week of how we need to assess our affirmations well. Somebody in our Q&A session pointed out, you didn't mention this aspect, uh, the, the fact that the church doesn't um, set the canon, it actually recognizes it. And that was a very valid point. So we're going to include that in the affirmations. All that to say, I encourage you to join the Q&A sessions that we have every second Sunday of the month. It was going to be the first Sunday, but we moved it to the second Sunday because I realized communion's long, I'm long. <laughs> it's better to do it on the second Sunday. Um, and if you have any, and especially as we're going to be going into the doctrine of the Trinity, um, you'll probably have a lot of questions. So if you have a question that arises in your mind, write it down and send it to me, rj at crestwick.org, and then we'll address them second Sunday of June. Yeah, second Sunday of June. Today's the second Sunday of May. The next month is the second Sunday of June, right? Last week, we discussed our affirmation of the doctrine of Scripture. And we give thanks to God for His self-revelation that is the foundation of our faith. That's why we can know God, because God has revealed Himself. Alistair McGrath says, against the tendency of human beings to invent or construct their own idea of God and then worship it, which is idolatry, or declare that it's not worth worshiping, which is rationalism, we may set the exciting and deeply disturbing Christian insight that God has taken the initiative in revealing himself to us. Who God is and what he is like. These are matters on which God himself has decided to have the final word. Christian thinkers thus attempt to wrestle with God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, particularly in its testimony to Jesus Christ. Now, Alistair McGrath deliberately points to the Lord Jesus Christ because the passage that we're going to be studying points out that God's progressive self-revelation climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. According to Mark Thompson, who wrote a new book on the doctrine of Scripture, the Christian doctrine of Scripture must return again and again to the person, words, and work of Jesus Christ. He does not simply provide a launching pad for independent investigation. He remains its principal point of reference throughout. 
Jesus stands in the, midst of the, in the middle of the Bible as the one to whom its entire testimony points, but also as the one who points us both back to the Old Testament and forward to the words of his commissioned witnesses. The trustworthiness of the Bible is inextricably linked to the trustworthiness of Jesus. Because he is trusted, we trust the word he both endorsed and commissioned. And so today, we focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're jumping across the first the letter B of the affirmation to letter C. And this is what we affirm about the Lord Jesus Christ. The supreme revelation of God is found in Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Son of God, a fully divine person of the Trinity, existed eternally, but in order to save us humans, he added to his divinity a full and perfect human nature, and thus became Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a Jewish virgin, Mary. He lived a sinless life in obedience to God the Father, and his obedience culminated in his death as a payment of the penalty for the disobedience of sinful humans. God vindicated him when he raised him bodily from the dead, and he ascended to heaven where he reigns at the right hand of God the Father over all things for the church. He now intercedes for us who believe in him and preserves us in our relationship with the Father while we await his personal return. That's our affirmation. Is it biblical? Well, turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. What we do recognize reading the book of Hebrews is that he wrote this book or this word of exhortation to Jewish believers who are so worn out by the struggle to be faithful, they are tempted to give up their faith. And this is where this passage connects to us, even if we are not Jewish. Life can have a way of overwhelming us. Yesterday, we, were, we had the parenting seminar here, and the, I, I can't count the number of times overwhelm came up. It's not just parenting that's overwhelming. Life is often overwhelming, and we are tired of many things. Whatever your situation, whatever reason for your struggle and fatigue, the writer of Hebrews points us to, our, to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He describes Jesus as our glorious mediator, one who is prophet, priest, and king. And he encourages us to fix our eyes on him. Because in him, all our needs are met. So turn with me to Hebrews 1. We'll read verse 1 to verse 4. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. 
I'll be reading from the NIV 2011. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, or better translated, he has spoken to us by son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So as the the writer of Hebrews points us to Jesus. He first points out that Jesus is the prophet because he is God's ultimate revelation. He is the living word made flesh. And underlying this is the understanding that we cannot know objective truth about who God is and about ourselves apart from God's revelation in nature and Scripture. And God meets this need for knowledge, for understanding, because He has spoken. And verse 1 says that He has spoken through the prophets. And that revelation has happened progressively. That's why He says, in at many times and in various ways. It speaks to that progressive revealing of the nature and character of this God. His point is that this progressive revelation has reached its climax in God speaking by Son. You notice the contrast, verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by Son. And the phrase is meant to emphasize that unique relationship of Jesus with the Father. He relates to the Father as Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, as John would say. He is the prophet that Moses had pointed to in Deuteronomy, who would be greater than him because he is the ultimate prophet. And Something unique happens in Hebrews chapter 1. We are not told who this son is until chapter 2 and verse 9. We learn that this son, who is the ultimate revelation of the Father, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary. We find it in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And the writer can speak of these last days, because the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Son, being incarnate, ushered in the last days because the Son of God is the ultimate self-revelation 
meaning no further revelation is coming to supplement what God has now fully revealed in his son. As Stephen Wallen would point out in his book, God the Son Incarnate. I would encourage you to get that book. Phenomenal book. May cost you to take a couple of Advils, but it's well worth those Advils. And that responds to anybody who claims to bring another revelation, to bring something about God beyond Jesus. We know right then and there that guy is either crazy or badly mistaken. There is nothing more to come after Jesus except the return of King Jesus. And in describing Jesus in verse 2 as the heir of all things and the active agent of creation, the author is emphasizing that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. As the perfect sinless man, Jesus reveals to us what it truly means to be human. Because he is all that Adam failed to be. He is human, fully human. But he is also the active agent of creation. Therefore, as the active agent of creation, he is divine. That he is the active agent of creation through whom God made the universe tells us that God, the Son of God is Pre-existent. He was from eternity. And later on, if you look at chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, the author cites Psalm 102 to affirm that not only was Jesus eternal before time began, he is also eternal for all of time and unchanging. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. It is an affirmation of Jesus being, or of the Son of God being eternal, and therefore divine. And in case you and I miss it, he goes on in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus reveals the invisible God in his own person because he shares in God's nature and essence. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of, its na of his nature. God's glory is the visible expression of his majestic person. And that's why Jesus could tell Philip when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. What are you talking about, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So that Jesus, as the living word, doesn't simply speak truthfully. He does. But as the incarnate son, he himself is the truth. 
You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. In him, we see most clearly what God is like. He is the prophet who mediates to us the knowledge of who God is and who we are. That's not all that Jesus is. He goes on. After he had provided purification for sins. And it points to Jesus as our great high priest. The one who has purified us from sin. As our great high priest, Jesus reconciles us to God. You see, our biggest problem isn't our ignorance. Our biggest problem is our sin. The fact that we need purification from sin indicates a reality that we don't like, but that is nonetheless true. We are defiled sinners separated from the holy and righteous God. And the language of defilement indicates that sin is not just a smear of peanut butter that we can wipe off our lips. We think that way, don't we? Sin is defilement. It's embedded, if you will, into us. It renders us completely unclean. Let's put it in these terms. And I ask for your apologies right now. Or your forgiveness. Imagine a delicious, nourishing pot of homemade chicken soup. All organic. You pick the vegetables yourself. You might have raised the chickens yourself. Slaughtered it yourself. And you are the best chicken soup maker. And you're scooping it into your bowl. It's smelling so good. And as that ladle pours it in, you realize that a small mouse had gone swimming. Sorry to spoil lunch. (laughs) But that's what defilement is about. It renders unfit and unclean. And your visceral reaction of disgust in some way, shape, and form points us to God's response to our sin. Our sin renders us loathsome and vile in the eyes of God who is holy and righteous, who cannot stand sin. And worse, because you and I are responsible for our sin, None of us can say, the devil made me do it. God is not just disgusted. He is justly angry with us. That is what the defilement of sin entails. And so we need a priest who would represent us before God and make a way for us to be made right with him. And praise God, that is precisely what Jesus did. That is why this sovereign God, this glorious Son, became man. 
He became man so that we may, he may willingly offer himself in our place. So that he may sacrifice himself by taking the punishment you and I deserve and paying the penalty for our sin. Look at Hebrews 10. Join me, please. Hebrews 10, verse 11 to verse 14. Wonderful words. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's us. And that's what Jesus has done. Our guilt is so great that the second person of the triune God became man because he alone could pay the price. He alone could satisfy the justice of God so that he, the sinless son, who fully pleased the father bore the wrath you and I deserve. And his perfect obedience that fully pleased the father is credited to us by faith. And in so doing, he is satisfied forever the righteous demands of God's law. And he has made us fit to enter into God's presence. So the author could say, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His sacrifice forever satisfied God's requirements. What's the implication? Well, keep going in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Because of that, we can confidently enter God's presence. Because of that, our singing is accepted by God. Our prayers are heard by God. Not because we sound amazing or because our prayers are eloquent. No. But because of Chapter 10, verse 19, the sacrifice of Jesus. Hear what the writer of Hebrews has to say. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's the basis, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Since we have a great, high pre great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The finished work of Christ is the basis of our acceptance before God. We often come to church almost 
unwillingly because we know how bad we've been through the week. Here's what this text means. No matter what you've done, through faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And God actually welcomes you into worship. You have boldness to come before him. Because our great high priest didn't just pay the sacrifice that we need to be accepted by God. He also ever lives to make intercession for us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14 to verse 16. And it's amazing to me to know that chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 talks of God's word that cuts deep into our hearts, that reveals our sinfulness, then moves into the reality of our great high priest. This high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, fully understands our struggles. He experienced the harsh realities of life in a broken and fallen world as a truly, fully human being. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize in our weaknesses. You hear those words? Our great high priest can empathize, can feel with us the reality of weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He felt the weight of temptation, yet he did not sin. But that doesn't mean that he's ready to kick you to the curb because you fell to sin. Notice what it says. Let us then, in view of this great high priest who empathizes with us, who was tempted like us, and yet did not sin. Let us then, because of who he is and what he has done, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How can we have confidence? Because this high priest, this Jesus, obeyed to the end. He doesn't just empathize. He's paid the price. He's credited his righteousness to us. And better than that, he is able and eager to help us in our struggles. And this is our comfort during these difficult and confusing times. God's throne, which ought rightly to be a place of condemnation because you and I are sinners who have failed God more times than we could ever imagine. God's throne is a throne of grace from which mercy flows. 
That's the kind of God who invites us to draw near. In fact, the language of draw near should be better translated, keep drawing near. Because our great high priest has opened that new and living way by his body broken for us. By his death and resurrection, we are invited to keep drawing near that we might find in Christ grace to help us in our time of need. And if you haven't gotten it yet, when the writer says, in our time of need, he means we always are needy people. Those of us who are struggling understand, yes, I'm needy. But some of you are like me. Arrogant, competent, well, thinking you're competent. I think I'm pretty well put together. In this text, the fact that I need a great high priest, that the, the Son of God had to become man so that he might be my great high priest, tells me, you're not all that, bruh. You are a needy person. And that's great. Because our great high priest does not simply have good intentions. This great high priest has the authority and ability to act on our behalf. Go back to the text, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. He is seated at the Father's right hand. That is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, the passage that Matt read. That means that our sympathetic, empathetic high priest has been exalted to the highest place. That our great high priest is the king who reigns and rules over all. In calling Jesus the one who is appointed heir of all things, the writer of Hebrews is actually alluding also to Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. And Thomas Schreiner points out the implications of that. The son is described as the heir of all things, which is a clear allusion to the inheritance promised to the Davidic king in Psalm 2 verse 8. The author of Hebrews applies this psalm to Jesus himself as David's son. He is the son who will rule to the ends of the earth. In other words... Jesus is the one who will fulfill the promises made to Abraham, which will lead to blessing for the whole world. You know what that means? The fact that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high is good news. He is king over all with absolute authority over the universe. When Abraham Kuyper would say, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our, of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, that is reason for rejoicing, not fear. Because Christ, who is sovereign over all, reigns to bring blessing for the whole world. 
that's good. And so it is good for us to submit to this king. But the flip side is also to recognize that to refuse him, to refuse to acknowledge his rule is not just futile, but foolish. For he waits till his enemies are put under his footstool. When he reigns, when he returns, he will judge all rebels. And all who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ will suffer his wrath for all eternity. And so we urge you, kiss the Son, flee to him from the wrath to come. Flee to King Jesus, who established the new covenant that we celebrated in the Lord, that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Flee to King Jesus, who has overcome our rebellion by his death and resurrection, who has given us new hearts, indwelt by his spirit, who enables us to love and obey him, not because we have to, but because we delight in him. Flee to King Jesus, who transforms our desires by the beauty of his person so that we would enjoy the goodness of his purposes. Flee to King Jesus, whose rule rescues us from our bondage to sin, from the power of Satan, who indeed has defeated Satan. Flee to King Jesus, who by his death and resurrection has ushered in the new creation. You see, we're not the only ones affected by sin. This whole world is under God's curse because Adam sinned. And Jesus, as the last Adam, removed the stain of sin by his death and resurrection. His resurrection brings in the new creation so that now we live in the already, not yet. We are members of the new creation, though we do not see it in its fullness. Now, our hope Our sure and steadfast hope that is the anchor of our souls is that when Christ returns, the glory of the new creation will be revealed in its fullness. All the devastation that sin has wrought will be undone. We ourselves will be made new. We'll have glorified bodies able to pass through walls. Better yet, we'll be using those bodies properly (laughs) because our character will be completely transformed so that we would be like Jesus, so that we will be able to enjoy that new creation fully for all eternity. No longer hindered 
by the stain of sin, no longer hampered by our misguided desires. And better yet, we will be able to enjoy the living and true God most fully because we will be in his presence and his presence will not consume us because those bodies that he will give us will be fit to stand before his glorious presence. That is the hope, that marvelous hope to which this text points us when it says that Jesus The Son is sustaining all things, verse 3, by his powerful word. He's not simply holding things up like Atlas. He is guiding all events. That's what sustaining actually means. He is carrying it to its predetermined end. God is, our Lord Jesus Christ our king, our priest, our prophet who gave himself for us is guiding all events to fulfill his glorious purposes. And that's our confidence and comfort in a world that is chaotic, that looks so out of control. What looks like a mess to us is from God's standpoint a beautiful yet unfinished tapestry. Those of you who have beautiful tapestries or weave uh, carpets that have designs on them, if you're able, or rugs, if you're able, look underneath. It's a mess, isn't it? It's ugly. Well, that's why there's an underside and a top side. Not supposed to look at the underside. That's us. We're looking at that tapestry from underneath. So yes, it's an, an incomprehensible mess. But from God's standpoint, he sees the finished product. He knows where he's going. And we know that this beautiful tapestry of history will be completed for his glory, for our good, because it is guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. As Stephen Wallam would say, truly in Christ alone, All our needs are met completely and perfectly. Our need for truth is found in him as the final prophet and revelation of God. Our need for a righteous standing before God is achieved by him as our priestly representative, substitute, and new covenant head. Our need to have our rebel hearts subdued, our enemies defeated, and the new creation inaugurated and ultimately consummated is accomplished by him alone as our conquering king. And so, brethren, let us cling to Christ 
because of all he is and all he has done as our prophet, priest, and king. He alone deserves our trust, our obedience, our love, and loyalty. The wonder of Jesus, according to verse 4, as we close off, is that a human is now superior to angels because the eternal son has become the eternal man, which means that Yahweh has come in the flesh to do what only he can do, cosmic redemption, reconciliation, and rule. And so the writer summons the angels to worship Jesus. Verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. Let us join them with lips and lives given over to his praise. Let us pray.